Hi, I'm Luisa Portugal. And I'm Ria Almeida. This is our show where we talk about coronavirus-related policy issues as we try to navigate this crazy pandemic with you. Our guests this week are Tegusa Sonko, talking about the post-crisis tourism industry in Indonesia and the world, and Ana Maria Raimundo, talking about how civil society organizations are helping in the Philippines. Welcome to CoronaCast, a Wagner Review podcast series. Ria, this is a very exciting episode for us, as the entire cast today hails from cultures in the global south. And we are particularly interested in the lands, because if you couldn't tell, we are also from the global south, (laughs) India and Brazil, to be more specific. I totally agree. Especially during this world war on COVID-19, governments and citizens in the global south have a completely unique and disproportionate set of problems. Today, we'll try to showcase some of those problems in even more diverse accents. Before that, our fellow Wagner student and dear friend Martina Lee reminded us that May is Asian Pacific American Heritage Month, which is fitting since our guests are from Southeast Asia. So here's a short message from her. May is Asian Pacific American History Month, so let's take a moment to recognize the impacts of the pandemic on Asian American communities. Hate crimes against Asian Americans are surging, emboldened by the U.S. president's anti-Chinese messaging. And while the New York City shutdown started in March, many Chinatown businesses have been suffering since January when the first reports emerged from Wuhan. Yet so many APAs are on the front lines of the crisis, from caring for COVID patients in hospitals to running essential businesses in our neighborhoods. These businesses are the backbone of our community, so please consider supporting your local minority-owned businesses however you can, and let's pull through this together. Thank you for that, Martina. And in the spirit of our first international episode, let's do a quick recap of World News Updates this week. Unfortunately, I have a lot to talk about Brazil. We are currently the second country in total number of cases, and the death toll just keeps rising every day. And to make matters worse, Bolsonaro just fired the last health minister after we refused to make hydroxychloroquine the protocol for every coronavirus patient. Wait, so are you telling me that now hydroxychloroquine is the standard treatment for every COVID patient in Brazil? That's exactly right, Ria. Isn't that insane? Wow, Uh, insane is right. News from my home has been equally grim. The deadly Amphan cyclone, which hit the eastern coast of India and western coast of Bangladesh on Wednesday, May 20th, has devastated villages and cities, leaving millions displaced. Ironically, several emergency centers had been turned into COVID response medical units. So resources are a huge challenge. Three million people, most of them in Bangladesh, had to be evacuated just this week. And what's really worrying about the situation is how some governments are using this moment to impose new controversial laws. Going back to Brazil and Bolsonaro, the Minister of Environment was just caught saying that he wants to seize this opportunity where the world is distracted to pass legislation that he would never be able to pass otherwise. Wow. Uh, Well, that isn't the only way this crisis is making us think about new laws. In France, the new mandatory face mask policy is bringing into question a 2011 burqa ban, 
Muslim women are now calling both the policies contradictory. I mean, I get their points. So are they a large cover the faces? Are they not? Weird times we are living in. And for us to remember the gravity of this moment, the world has suffered over 5 million cases of coronavirus so far. And the US has hit a green milestone this week, 100,000 deaths. Everyone has probably seen this by now, but the New York Times front page this Sunday is a beautiful homage to the lives lost, a stark reminder that numbers will never really be able to convey all of the suffering that this pandemic has brought. Yeah, this is an extremely sad note to leave us on. There is no way to make an elegant transition. So let's just go over to our interview segment. Our first guest today hails from Jakarta, Indonesia, where 22,750 coronavirus cases have been recorded with nearly 1,400 deaths. Tegu is a first-year MPA student with a focus on international development. He currently works as a tourism policy analyst for the Ministry of Tourism and Creative Economy of Indonesia. Previously, he served as assistant to the Minister of Tourism in Indonesia as well. He's also an avid traveler and photographer, so you can always hit him up if you need tips for your post-quarantine trip to Bali. Thank you so much for joining us. So since the tourism industry is your area of interest, what was the industry like in the pre-COVID era of 2019 when everything was great? All right, Ria and Luisa, thank you for having me here. Travel and tourism contribute 10.3% of global GDP, according to the WTO. And it is also responsible for generating one in four of the world's new jobs. In 2019, 1.5 billion international tourist arrivals were recorded globally. And that is a 4% increase of the previous year, marking the 10th successive years of growth in which it has outpaced the growth of the global economy. This means that for the past 10 years, the sector never experienced any sort of decline. That is why the sector is viewed so optimistically and favored by many policymakers and leaders, especially in developing countries, to be promoted as a new source of growth. Figu, I'm a data nerd, so let's get to the numbers. How can we measure the impact of the coronavirus crisis so far in the tourism industry? International tourist arrivals declined was around 20 to 30 percent, and it is estimated by the UNWTO to be around those numbers in 2020. Now, the loss of the revenue is around 30 to 450 billion US dollars, which is almost one third of the 1.5 trillion that was generated last year. Now, the equivalent of it is a loss of three months of global travel that corresponds to a reduction in jobs, around 75 million jobs. Now, this was an estimate in late late March. Now, the estimate was further updated in April, stating that the numbers increased to approximately 100 million potential job losses. Now, this affects Asia the most, where it is nearly 60% of that, followed by Europe and North America with 13 and 8% respectively. You mentioned 100 million jobs lost globally and that Asia will be the continent most affected by that. What about low to middle income countries? Are they impacted disproportionately in this crisis? Yes, countries that rely most heavily on tourist dollars will be the hardest hit. 
a 25% decline in tourism income will knock an average of 7% of the GDP among small island developing states. Now, for example, British Virgin Islands tourism contributes 92% to their GDP, while Aruba is 86%. Now, they might not be large in nominal figures, but the percentage, the high percentage of it gives an idea of how devastating the COVID-19 crisis is for the economy. Pegu, I wouldn't describe Indonesia as a small island country, but I still want to know how reliant on tourism is it? And I also know that the country recently approved a stimulus package. So how will it work to alleviate the impact of the crisis on this sector? Tourism is one of the top three uh, generating revenue for Indonesia. So regarding the tourism sector, their stimulus packages goes mostly to the hotel workers and the small businesses and restaurants, which is all together grouped. Uh, in a way that they are considered to be poor and to be living on the edge of the poverty line. So one thing that was like something unique in terms of the policy in Indonesia is that hotels do remain open, but they cater to the health workers, uh, providing food and you know services with the help from the stimulus from the government. So that's how it works. So, the, so it's not essentially, you know, losing their job or the income of the people that works there, but also it's, it's a more of a collaborative thing between the government and the hotel industries, as well as the health workers and the health centers around. And to follow up on that, what do you think about the Indonesian government response to the coronavirus crisis in general? So far, it has been satisfying in a way that people do adhere to these lockdowns. But one thing that I'm very worried, this is my personal opinion, is that during these Ramadan and Eid uh, times that people will go back to their villages, they want, they yearn for spending Eid and Ramadan with their families back in their villages. So, you know, it really depends on how the government actually put their strict or not strict rules towards uh, the traveling of people from the cities to the villages in order to stop the spread. So I'm just hoping for the best for the country and hopefully Indonesia will follow other neighboring countries as well. As you know, Vietnam is reporting no cases. They have eased their lockdowns and, you know, Thailand and Malaysia also saw a decrease in cases, but let's just hope that Indonesia will soon follow their footsteps as well. Since we're NYU students, it would be helpful if we could get the U.S. context. So what does this mean for the American tourism industry? For the U.S. context, the travel industry losses will far exceed that of any sector. This is six times the impact of 9-11, and the losses alone will be enough to push the U.S. economy into the recession. Now, to be more specific in the numbers, uh, these were gathered by the U.S. Travel Association, where a decline of 31% of the entire year is expected, which includes a 75% drop in revenue over the next two months. And it's a continued losses over the rest of the year, reaching around $355 billion. Tegu, let's finish with this question. Greece and Italy have recently confirmed that they will open the country for summer tourism and probably more countries will follow soon. So, as the world starts to go back to normal, what does the travel industry look like? 
you know, as the like of some places in Europe, as you have mentioned, and I would probably see this in other parts of Asia, like China, uh, South Korea, and Vietnam, which they have uh, significantly improved their uh, conditions of crisis. They have also eased their COVID-19 safety measures in some parts of their countries, specifically in tourist destinations, but under the condition of encouraging specifically to domestic tourism, domestic travel. Now, we've also seen some of the statements by some leaders and policymakers, even Governor Cuomo, have statements highlighting that travel and tourism industry will be the sector that leads the recovery post-COVID-19 crisis. But in my personal opinion, again, in the short run, it is more leaning towards reviving domestic travel and catering the domestic market rather than promoting international travel altogether. Highlighting that hopefully, you know, health and safety measures are the most important ones that needs to be addressed. That was really great. Thanks, Tagu. Your Just your knowledge and of the breadth of the tourism industry is so great. And now, on to our next guest. Ana Maria hails from Manila, Philippines, which has 14,319 cases, of which nearly 900 have resulted in death as of May 25th. Ana Maria is a fellow MPA PNP student specializing in public policy analysis. She spent six years working in the Philippines government before moving to New York for grad school. And she has experience with social protection and poverty reduction programs. She's also the new chair of the Wagner International Student Society, and she will be joining me at the Alliance for Climate Change and Environment this year. Thank you for coming here, Anna. So for starters, can you talk about the Bayanihan to Heal as One policy? Basically, the Bayanihan to Heal as One is the official law signed by the president last March 25, which uh, details the, the overall strategy of the national government in addressing the situation of COVID in the Philippines. So when the law was enacted, it was actually the second draft. Um, the original draft gave him multiple special powers that were unconstitutional. So the second draft addressed some of these unconstitutional clauses such that the final draft really focused on the specific provisions that the national government would give, particularly to those who will be most affected. Part of that law also includes an enhanced community quarantine around the entire uh, mainland of Luzon. So starting March 17, the law basically declares that the whole of Luzon, especially Manila, would be on complete lockdown. And then aside from that, the Bayanihan law also gives special authority to the president to provide direct cash aid to 18 million low-income Filipino families. Um, that also gives him the authority to discontinue um, appropriated programs or activities throughout the year so that they could adjust their appropriations to spend on the cash aid. Anna, it's interesting to hear you talking about the first draft and Dudete trying to get more power from himself because lack of transparency has definitely been a problem with his administration. One of the things that we hear is that the, his press conference have gathered some controversy. Can you tell us more about that? Initially, he had agreed to have a press briefing around probably 3 o'clock p.m. in the afternoon, his very first. 
And it wasn't until 12 midnight of the same day that he was actually able to push through with the briefing. And that sort of started where people reacted really negatively to his public presentations and press briefings, particular to this topic, because it did not have the sense of urgency that people were looking for. Moving forward with it, um, he also has consistently kept press briefings during about that same time, which did not, which has not been sitting well with a lot of people. And they have been pre-recorded, although presented as live. Duterte has gained attention globally for his war on drugs policy and how violent and selective it can be. So during this crisis, is the selectivism repeating itself? Um, in certain instances, some of his appointed representatives or his appointed cabinet members have been found to violate the laws regarding the lockdown. So, for example, one of his um, appointees actually violated the law by gathering overseas workers, repatriated overseas workers in a huge, cra- um, in a huge you know, um, area when supposedly people weren't allowed to have mass gatherings. But unfortunately, she wasn't reprimanded, nor was she investigated. We've also had cases where poor individuals were actually shot down, literally shot down by the police for allegedly breaking the law. So we've seen sort of polar opposites of, I think, the the differences with the way he's treated people with regard to... uh, implementing and following the laws has really given the general public, you know, a worse image of what they have of him. Honestly, I could go on about this, but... Specific to this current lockdown situation in Manila, could you give us an outline of who is helping during this lockdown? So right now in Manila, um, a lot of the local governments have done their, their share and have stepped up, but a large part of it has also really been civil society. Different um, civil society groups and private individuals have provided um, their assistance from feeding frontliners, distributing and making food supply chains move from the, you know, from the provinces to the city. Civil society has also stepped up in ensuring that alternatives to medical grade PPE have been given to frontliners. Fashion designers, for example, have stepped up to design and produce the best alternatives to medical-grade PPE suits. Aside from that, we've also seen how civil society has stepped up in helping students from public schools continue their education at home. You mentioned civil society organizations stepping up to fill in the gaps of governance. So, who are these players stepping up in Manila? For education, there's AHA Learning Center. And it's actually a non-government organization that was founded to initially complement school lear- you know, public school learning for children. And it was really help- meant to address reading and math needs. And now they've expanded to provide learning materials for parents as well. Another is the food, uh, Move Food Initiative, which is led by a group of farmers who uh, wanted to bring produce from outside Metro Manila into the city, into the capital. Again, because the lockdown uh, kept the farmers 
from sending their supplies to the to the capital. Another initiative is um, the COVID Citizens Budget Tracker, which really focuses on helping keep the government accountable and transparent with the funds that are meant to provide direct cash assistance to the 18 million low-income families. You talk about a citizen-sourced budget tracker um, for transparency. That's really interesting. Could you tell us a little more about how it works? Before this started, the government released reports, but the reports appeared very general and did not give specific breakdown of the budget. The government presented that they had a certain amount, which was roughly about equivalent to $7.5 billion, but the details on how that $7.5 billion was being spent, those weren't really provided and reported. So the whole essence of seeing, you know, the, the cases in the Philippines rise, and yet we aren't seeing the progress of government assistance, that's sort of where it started. And that's really the gap that the budget tracker wanted to address. It's really allowing people to understand what's going on, where are the funds going, and are people receiving the funds as, you know, as promised. And it started with a lot of really looking up what's published online. So it was a very arduous first phase of really just culling out data wherever it was available and then reaching out to whoever could allow data to be more accessible. And then once some of the data you know, was available, it was a matter of putting them together and then translating information into something that was more palatable for the general public. Anna, it's so interesting to hear you talk about how civil society has organized itself in the Philippines. Could you talk more about the historical and maybe cultural context that made this organization so strong? I'll, I'll go back to the whole essence of the title of the, the law. Actually, Bayanihan has been a cultural practice in the Philippines for many years. And essentially, Bayanihan comes from the root word, which is Bayan, which means town. And the whole essence of Bayanihan is really people working together and people considering them, themselves as part of a community. So the whole idea of communalism has been strong in the Philippines, uh, you know, culturally. And I think that's really where um, it historically manifests. But at the same time, the Philippines has been known to experience a lot of natural calamities. So whenever we have typhoons and earthquakes, the initial response is often for civil society to help with direct assistance. Often because um, the assistance from government is not enough or probably takes longer than people would like. Thanks for joining us, Anna. Your perspective is really valuable in helping us understand how civil society organizations have stepped up in Manila. And thank you for listening. If you'd like to be a part of the discussions as they happen, email us to be a part of the WhatsApp Coronavirus Policy Discussion Group. We'll see you next week on CoronaCast, a Wagner Review podcast series. <laughs>